Hi. Welcome to Saturday the 14th. Yay. I'm Maggie. I'm Maddie. Which is not so confusing good luck at with all. That. <laughs> um, so what we're doing today uh, is we're starting a podcast. Yep. We're going to talk about horror movies. It's going to be are, a lot of fun. We are two friends who like talking and also horror movies. Mostly so, talking. Mostly talking. Sometimes about horror movies. Often about horror movies, which is why we're here today. Yes. Each week, we're going to go ahead and look at a different movie. We're going to talk about the themes and tropes and all those fun things, figure out the impact. And just sort of chat about the history of horror and where these movies fall in the history of horror and, uh, you know, what they borrow from and what what they give back. And also just make comments on some of the ridiculous moments in them because... There's a lot lot of weird things, especially in these old movies. So to kick things off... uh, we're going to go ahead and talk about Friday the 13th. We are. It's one of the earliest slashers, so we're starting almost at the beginning. Um, although I did kind of realize when I was doing some research for this that Halloween is really the beginning of slashers. But we're going with Friday the 13th because of the name connection and also the fact that Friday the 13th was yesterday and today is Saturday the 14th. That is true. It's harder to Google stuff about Halloween the movie. Because you Google things and like Halloween costumes That's come true. up there's at this a time lot. of year. There's a lot. Every time I, I did a lot of Googling um, for this episode uh, and I kept trying to enter just Halloween movie and there's like, you just get lists of like 32 great Halloween movies. So I appreciate oh, I you think about that. Yeah, it's a lot. There's a lot out there. Yeah. Um, it's a very non-specific name. Friday the 13th is more specific, although there are still like seven of these movies. Um, but we're talking about the first one today. Because that's where it all started, and it has everything you could possibly want. It's got sex, it's got murder, it's got strip poker, it's got a young Kevin Bacon, and it's got a character named Crazy Ralph. Isn't it Strip Monopoly specifically? You're right. Oh my gosh. I wrote Strip Poker here in my notes, but it should be Strip Monopoly, um, because it's more boring than Strip Poker. I beg to differ. And longer, and more dangerous to your close friendships. Yes, that is true. It's yeah. definitely more dangerous to your close friendships, but I would argue that it's a lot more fun than strip poker because you get to ruin said friendships. And any game in which you're ruining friendships means you're having a good time. I'll be honest with you, I don't know how to play poker, but I do know how to play Monopoly. So Same. It comes, it, that one helps me. I like that better. I like that part better. So we'll get into some facts on this. Um, so Friday the 13th was released in 1980. It was directed and produced by Sean S. Cunningham. It was written by Victor Miller. I just want to make a comment on the fact that it was made in 1980 it means that it's this glorious like mix of the 70s and 80s in terms of fashion. Like you get a lot of the 70s high waisted stuff, then the occasional really excellent side ponytail comes up. There's and some it's quality just, side ponies. Yes, there really are. There's a, a predominant bowl cut. Yeah, I kind of love it and hate it at the same time. I'm just going to go on record here saying that no one should ever have a bowl cut. Um, Except for Alice, because Alice does rock Alice it Alice kind of rocks bit. the bowl cut. But she's just, I mean, she's doing so much other stuff that it's like, she deserves to have a bowl cut. Yeah. Just based on the other things that she's gone through. And just a quick note to anyone listening, there will be spoilers. Oh, so yeah. So if you haven't seen it, I mean, it did come out. You should watch it or else you won't know what we're talking 37 about. 37 years ago? Yeah, it came out a, a long time ago. You should have seen it by now. And if you haven't seen it by now, that's not our it's fault. It's kind of your fault for not having seen it. Exactly. Um, so this stars Adrian King as Alice with the bowl cut, who we've already brought up, Harry Crosby, Laurie Bertram, Mark Nelson, Janine Taylor, and as previously mentioned, a very young baby Kevin Bacon uh, as the camp counselors who are 
uh, murdered. Plus, it also does feature Robbie Morgan as Annie, who doesn't actually make it to Camp Crystal Lake, so I feel bad kind of lumping her in with the others because she's really not part of their crowd. And it stars Betsy Palmer as the murderer, Pamela Voorhees. And the special effects, which are definitely worth a mention, are by Tom Savini, who is a genius. All right, Maddie, do you want to kick off our synopsis here? Tell us what it's all about. Yeah, definitely. So Friday the 13th is all about a group of young counselors who go up to Camp Crystal Lake and are getting ready for the campers to arrive. So at this point, it is just the counselors. The movie opens in 1958. There are two young counselors who die because they've snuck around, snuck off to uh, go fool around, you know, as horror movie counselors do. I don't know. I was a camp counselor. That didn't really happen at the counselor. I camp only thing. went to camp like once when I was a child, and I got so homesick that I just cried the entire time. Um, so I don't really have like the the background that I feel like it requires to really appreciate these movies because for me, I was already terrified and miserable. At camp. <laughs> Uh, and I probably would have been okay with it, to be honest, if someone had started killing people, um, if, if it meant I could have left. So, to continue our synopsis, after those two camp counselors in 1958 die, it jumps forward to the present. It's 1980. It's just 1980. Yeah. Where we see a young woman named Annie walking around the New Jersey town near Camp Crystal Lake looking for directions. She's given warnings by the townspeople in that really, like, cliche way. Oh, my God. This is where Crazy Ralph shows up. And Crazy Ralph is my favorite character because he is this lunatic on a bicycle. It's got a death curse. Shows up and starts screaming about this death curse. Um, and he's, I mean, he's not right necessarily, but he, he's, he's the smartest character in this movie. I'm Except for as far as we know, only two people have ever died there. No. Sorry. No. Three wrong. people have Three died people there have died because there. they mention in passing casually, uh, that before the two young camp counselors were murdered in 1958, the year before that a young boy drowned in the lake. And so that features in to why they think there's a death curse because there was a drowning and then there was a murder and then it's been shut down for like 20 years. Okay, that is a lot more valid. Anyway, so here from Crazy Ralph, well, our young girl, Annie, she finds a ride into town with a truck driver who takes her part of the way there. And from there, she starts walking again, gets a new ride, and then is like murdered by that person. So basically she gets into this blue Jeep uh, they drive her past Camp Crystal Lake. She realizes that something's wrong. She jumps out of the blue Jeep. We never see the person who's in the Jeep with her. We just see her running through the forest, and then she gets, like, her throat slit by uh, someone who is wearing a flannel shirt and a large class ring on one of their hands. Um, and so that's when we kind of first start to see the real action start happening. Yeah. Um, so at the same time, the rest of the camp counselors are already, they're already up at the camp. They're waiting for her to show up. They kind of realize that she's not going to show up. And we're sort of seeing all of their, you know, romantic relationships and, uh, fun, sexy times that are happening up there. Um, and, uh, a thunderstorm is, is supposed to come in. So Steve, who is the owner and who is also, he's like, definitely, he's definitely fucking Alice with the bowl cut. Yeah. And it's weird. Like he touches her face. Like they don't outright say it but she's all like oh I drew you this picture and he's like, like is this what I look like and she's like that's what you, what you look, look like, like last, last night. night and then he like strokes her face and then he leaves it's really odd he's also a lot older than her he's a lot older and also much uglier um, but also I mean spoiler alert she's the one who doesn't die but she's clearly the one who's like fucking the older man that's true there's a there's a lot of weird death by sex stuff uh, in this where like it, it kind of becomes part of the, the genre, but it hasn't it's really like fully set in death yet. Death by sex, unless you have a bowl cut. 
The bowl cut is the saving factor. It the bowl is. cut keeps you safe. So Steve uh, gets in his car to go drive into town and get some supplies, and his car is also a blue Jeep, which they don't really outright address, but I think they're supposed to be implying that he might possibly be the killer at this point. I will be honest and say I watched it. I did not notice that it was a blue Jeep that picked up Annie or that it was a blue Jeep that Steve was driving. I did not make any of these connections. You just yelled about it and that's how I figured it out. Yeah, I didn't notice until the end um, after you see his Jeep a bit more um, and then some other stuff happens that we'll get to shortly. Um, so Steve takes off and he leaves the rest of them alone to get up to their, you know, sexy young adult situations. They're making out near lakes and pretending to drown and stuff. And Ned, who is one of the guys, uh, he's easily the most annoying human being who's ever existed. Um, he's fooling around. He fakes his drowning. He gets rescued. Um, he goes off wandering on his own while the other couples start sort of heading off together. Um, young Kevin Bacon and his girlfriend and then... Uh, Brenda and Bill and uh, and Alice go off to hang out, and Ned is just sort of wandering around in the woods. He sees this person off in a cabin, and for some reason he goes and checks it out, and then he just disappears. We don't see Ned again for a while. Um, and Jack and Marcy, who are Kevin Bacon and, and Kevin Bacon's girlfriend, um, they're like making out by the side of the lake. They start having this weird conversation about her recurring nightmare about a rainstorm that turns into drops of blood, and then a rainstorm starts, obviously. Um, there's some really terrible looking fake lightning where they're basically just firing off. And that's what we call flashes. foreshadowing. Yeah, it's really, really heavy handed. Um, but it's also great. I mean, you know, you, you it's it's a 1980 slasher movie, so you kind of get what you get. So Jack and Marcy, now that they've gotten their weird foreshadowing out of the way, they go off to a cabin to get out of the rain. They start to have some weird, boring sex on a bunk bed. Once they're done, she runs off to use the bathroom, leaving him alone with Ned's dead body in the upper bunk, which apparently no one noticed when they came inside. Uh, He doesn't notice. Jack still doesn't notice at this point in time. He lights a joint in bed, gets grabbed by a hand from under the bed, and has an arrow shoved through his... Obviously artificial neck. And it's great because it's shoved from like underneath the bed up through the mattress. And like there are usually springs of some sort in those like really bad bunk beds or whatever. Or maybe like wood slats depending on the quality of it. So like Mrs. Voorhees is like pushing that through. I'm like impressed at her strength. She's honestly clearly got some really impressive arm and core strength. Just based off of where she manages to leave these bodies over the course of the movie. Uh, So obviously he dies. There's a lot of blood spurting. It's really great. Curtains on Kevin Bacon. Uh, And then while while peeing, Marcy decides that she's going to investigate a noise that she hears in the bathrooms. She gets an axe to the face. And now we're down four total people. I guess six if you count uh, the two at the beginning. So then back at the counselor's cabin, Alice, Brenda, and Bill are playing a game of super sexy strip monopoly. I love this so much. It is amazing. It, one, is Brenda's idea, and you know that not only because she suggests it, but when she strips down, she has, like, the really gorgeous underwear and bra that are matching. Like, she clearly was planning this game. I feel like it was mean to spring that on Alice. Yeah. Like, Alice didn't know, you know? Yeah. She didn't. She should have given her the heads up. Overall, I would say, though, that it works out for Alice. Not so much for Brenda. It doesn't work out as well for Brenda. (laughs) So after the game of Strip Monopoly, they decide to call it a night. Brenda's reading in bed when she hears a kid calling for help and then goes out into the woods and into the rain to investigate it. And then gets murdered on an archery range. I just want to say, 
a lot of these movies are like, oh, you do something bad, you die. She dies because she was trying to save a child. It's that strip monopoly. It, it sticks with you. probably the strip monopoly, but... Yeah, Brenda deserved better. Brenda deserved better. She was actively trying to help a child in need and got killed. Solid. She's the camp counselor none of us deserve. So after that, Alice and Bill finally realize like some weird shit is going on, so they decide to go check it out. They find a bloody axe in Brenda's bed and then realize the phones are cut and the cars don't work, you know, because it's a summer camp and that's where you go to die usually. And so obviously they get freaked out. Bill is then killed off screen while checking on the generators because, you know, they split up because that's the best thing that you could possibly do when you're in a horror movie. They didn't know. It was 1980. They hadn't seen Friday the 13th yet, Maddie. <laughs> that is true. Not They had not yet seen it because they were, they were living. in it. But still, I feel like it's common sense. Like, don't split up. At this point, I think it should they, be because people are splitting up and then immediately dying. Had they already found the bloody axe? They had, which to me seems like a sign that you shouldn't. I don't know. I agree. I think that Bill kind of deserved it, to be honest. So then one of my favorite moments, Alice finds him pinned to a door and riddled with arrows, which like almost makes up for the fact that his death occurred off screen. But at the same time, it would have been really cool to like, see him being stabbed with all those arrows on screen. I think that at a certain point they realize that they can't show a lot because if they do, then they'll have to figure out how to not show her as the villain. Which also, is why there's a lot of, like, blinding light and stuff happening. Also, budget, I'm guessing, was a part of that. Yeah. Because it's probably more expensive to show someone being stabbed through the eye with an arrow than to show, like, a fake dead body shot through the eye with an arrow. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Steve gets back to the camp. He is the camp owner with the blue Jeep. And you're like, oh, man. But then he is also promptly murdered with someone with a flashlight. They don't so, murder him with the flashlight. Sorry. I realized that I wrote yes, that let me a, rephrase. <laughs> someone with a flashlight murders him. And I kind of didn't realize why they kept doing this when I watched the movie, but I do think it's just that they wanted a reason to, like, a, an excuse not to show her on screen. Because if the character's blind, blinded by the light, then we're blinded by the light, and then it's a... It yeah. happens a lot, because it happens at the... Um, at the archery range as well. That's true. The whole blinded by light thing does happen at the archery range. Yeah. And I guess it kind of makes you think that everyone is being murdered by someone who you actually know. But then it's kind of a cheap payout when you realize that you're, everyone's being murdered by someone you've never met before. Yeah, that's an interesting move that they do. Um, especially with the blue jeep thing happening. So... Alice realizes at this point that some serious shit is going down and that she's in danger. So she holds up in the counselor's cabin. She tries to secure the area. She makes some weird efforts. No, she is fantastic and I am proud of her. Those like that weird rope trap that she does where she she takes a piece of rope, ties it to the ceiling, ties it to the doorknob because the door gets pulled out. And so like they physically wouldn't be able to pull open the door. But then I kind of lost some faith in her because then she piles up a bunch of stuff behind the door. And like if the door opens out... That won't help. It'll it fall out. But I mean, it is a cheap camp, so maybe the door opens both ways. You know? Oh, I, mean, it's a I didn't think door. about that. That's very possible. It could be. Or maybe she was just trying to be safe. I don't know. I mean, she's been through some weird shit. Yeah, she was, like, scarred. The fact that she even thought that far ahead, I'm pretty proud of her for. I'm pretty happy for her. She's pretty pretty good at planning in a crisis. Um, so then Brenda's body gets thrown through a window at her, uh, which obviously freaks her out. A car rolls up. It's a blue Jeep again. She clearly thinks that this is going to be Steve, the inappropriate suitor. 
Obviously, we know that's not the case. Surprise, surprise. Instead, it is Mrs. Voorhees, who is a small middle-aged woman who dresses like my mother. She does dress like your mother. That's really funny. I did not think about that she until does. now. She looks a lot. She can't be that small, though. I think she's, like, surprisingly beefy under that cable knit sweater. She must be. She's got a knife, like, on her belt, which is impressive. Very outdoorsy. And she, like, holds up pretty well in, like, the weird fist fight thing that they have. Like, oh, she's man. pretty jacked, I think. We just can't see it because she's wearing, like, like three, a turtleneck and then, like, a sweater over it. Three cable knit sweaters on top of each other. Oh, it must man. be cold. I imagine. No, it's July. No, wait, it's July, and all the camp counselors are wearing t-shirts and shorts, and, and yeah. she's wearing the sweater and This is jeans. how you know that you can't trust her. True. Um, but she does pretend to be a motherly figure. She pretends that she's there to save the day or whatever, for a hot second, but she can't keep it together for very long. She whips out a knife, tells Alice about her son, Jason, who was the boy who drowned in the lake in 1957 because the counselors were too busy getting their bone on. So we see a series of very weirdly choreographed chase and fight scenes that follow, during which Alice basically finds everyone's dead bodies. They kind of show us everything that they didn't show us on screen, like Steve's body pops out of nowhere. It was an interesting choice, because, like, the first half of the people who died, you got to see the deaths. The second half, they just mysteriously disappeared. And she just discovers everyone who mysteriously disappeared in this sequence. She does, which, I mean, I feel like there was a lot of planning on Mrs. Voorhees' part, because she rigged Steve up to, like, fall and surprise Alice. It's a lot of work, considering she thought she was going to, like, kill Alice in the original counselor's thing, room, house. Yeah, I don't really know who that was for. It's a cabin. Maybe she anticipated her (laughs) counselor's house. (laughs) So... (laughs) So, there's a really weird bunch of choreographed fight scenes. We find everybody's dead body. Alice knocks Mama V out with a frying pan. And then this drove me crazy. She just walks down to the lake and hangs out there and just, like, chills by the side of the lake. Maybe it's because I've seen Zombieland a lot, but, like, double tap. Exactly. You double tap. You don't just, like, hit someone with a pan and then walk away and assume you're fine. Exactly. Especially when she already had hit her in the head with a gun at one point in time and she popped back up. Yeah, this is a recurring theme. Alice hits Mrs. Voorhees in the head with something. Mrs. V falls. Alice runs away, thinks she's safe. She's never safe. She's not safe. She's never this safe. This happens like three times in a row. It's but ridiculous. But she doesn't learn. She just goes and hangs out by the lake. And I, I mean, maybe she's in shock. I don't know. Whatever. Obviously, Mrs. Voorhees isn't done. And she comes back down and she has a machete. She's ready to kill Alice. Alice grabs the machete. She chops off Mrs. Voorhees head after another brief weird fight scene, which is a great special effect. It looks really messed up. And then she takes a canoe out to the middle of the lake. She's just sort of out there. The music is peaceful. The sun is coming up. Very interesting. It's like, oh, I've been like harassed all night by this murderer. All my friends are dead. I'm just going to hang out in this canoe in the middle of the lake. I feel like at this point in time, she's maybe injured. Maybe she's in shock. There's probably a good reason for it. I don't know. I'm trying to make excuses for Alice because I liked her fun rope trick. Her fun rope trick was great. Her bowl cut was excellent. She's a, a, a modern woman. She is. A woman of the 80s. So the cops pull up finally. It's the morning. Alice is relieved. She's out in a rowboat in the middle of the lake. And the music is beautiful. Oh, it's so nice. It's so relaxing. You're like, yes, finally this girl is getting what she deserves, which is not to be murdered. And then crazy, slimy, underwater Jason pops up. 
and just grabs her right around the face and pulls her into the water. And I do want to mention that his vertical leap is really impressive, actually. I don't know how he does that. I don't know either. It's like he's a dolphin or something. Yeah, it's but all he's that not. A lake. He's just been like underwater he's just been swimming practicing lessons while they've been gone. But then she wakes up. Yeah, so I'm a little fuzzy on this because she wakes up after she gets grabbed. She wakes up in a mental hospital. Maybe it's a dream sequence. She warns the doctors that he's still out there. Is it a mental hospital? I thought it was just a real hospital. I, I thought it was a mental hospital. A lot of things referred to it as a mental hospital, but it's, it's a little vague. I, I assume she would probably be in some kind of mental hospital because she's the only living person there. See, and I assumed that she was put into the hospital for like her injuries and stuff like that. And this was two days later and she wakes up in a frenzy because she's still in shock from all the shit that went down. That could be it too. Either way, the doctors don't believe her, but... So the implication is that, like, that's her imagining it. But then she's right, because he is still out there. And he shows up in the next, like, 85 movies and takes over his mama's mantle. And it was not Alice who had the crazy dream, right? Yeah, that was Marcy who had so the So it's not dream. even like she has some sort of psychic abilities. No, that would have been an interesting touch. That would have been. I hear she dies super early in the second one. I haven't oh, actually seen the second one. R.I.P. Alice. Does she yeah. still have the bowl cut, though? I don't know. That's really the only thing I I'll care about. I'll let you know. I'm supposed to watch it, like, tomorrow, so I'll, I'll, I'll shoot you a text. We can give you guys all an update. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's the end for now. Obviously, it continues. The magic keeps going. Um, but that's kind of... That's the movie. All right, so Friday the 13th. This is one of the earlier installments in the slasher category. Um, it was released right between the release of Halloween in 1978, which was a big influence on it, um, which is pretty clear to see when you're watching the movie. And also the creators have come right out and said that they kind of ripped off Halloween. And then Nightmare on Elm Street came out in 1984, which is kind of the next big touchstone slasher, I guess. There are other ones like Prom Night that came out before that. So they're like the slasher trinity. Yeah, like the kind of earlier ones that, I don't know, made the biggest long-term impact, had the biggest long-term stars in them. I mean, certainly Jamie Lee Curtis shows up in a lot of other slasher movies, but Halloween was kind of her first big one. Like it was for Kevin Bacon or Johnny Depp. Was Johnny Depp... In. No, I meant in their respective movies. Oh, okay. He's in, he's in Nightmare, Nightmare on Elm Street. Street. I and was also, really confused at first. And also they introduced these, you know, unkillable, super bad guys. Obviously, I mean, not the first Friday the 13th, since that's an old woman in a sweater. But later on in the series, it's an unkillable badass who can show up for multiple seasons and kind of becomes a, a pop culture icon. And Friday the 13th, in addition to Halloween, kind of did a lot to kickstart the genre and... Uh, set some of these tropes that we're familiar with now kind of in stone um, by replicating a lot of the stuff that they did. The script was originally titled A Long Night at Camp Blood. Which is an amazing name, I will say. I'm kind of sad that wasn't the name. I am too, because I feel like it really gets the point across more. It does. It was a really long night. It was at Camp Blood. What else could you want? And the thing is that Friday the 13th, like as a date, like barely factors in. They mention once... That the 13th was Jason's birthday. I don't even think they mentioned the fact that this all takes place on a Friday. Does it even take place on a Friday? I mean, I assume that it takes place on Did a Friday. Did he originally die on a Friday? Does she just kill yeah, people? Yeah, because like a Friday is not always a fri like the same date. No, know? it's not. The 13th is not always on a Friday, especially not in July. Why especially not in July? I don't know, like, February has four <laughs> weeks. I feel like 31 days really throws off the whole seven <laughs> days of the week thing. 
Okay, I'll give you that. I guess it's just as much not in July than I would say it's probably an equal amount not in July. That's fine. Either way, fuzzy on why they went with... Well, it's not fuzzy really on why they went with Friday the 13th. Uh, Sean Cunningham, who was the kind of creative guy behind this, Victor Miller was the writer, but Sean Cunningham directed and produced it. He loved that title. Uh, He intentionally sought out that title. Before writing this, Victor Miller uh, was not actually a horror writer at all. He hasn't written any of the other films in the franchise. He's mostly worked on soap operas since then, so this is not coming from a great horror mind necessarily. To be fair, that is the kind of twist that would happen in a soap opera, though. It'd be like, oh no, it wasn't the son, it was the mom. That is definitely true. You're right about that. I mean, there's definitely sort of that influence. And he liked that. I mean, I think that that tells a lot about why he ended up being successful in soap operas, because he said about Mrs. Voorhees, Mrs. Voorhees was the mother I'd always wanted, a mother who would have killed for her kids, which is, like, kind of sweet, but it's also, like, really weird. And, like, yeah, I don't know. I have mixed feelings. Wasn't she also at the camp the day that he died? Like, why wasn't she watching him? She was the camp cook. Yeah. And so she was probably... Oh, and she killed the camp cook first. That probably doesn't have anything to do with anything. It's just an interesting because Annie was the cook. Remember, she's oh like, my oh my god, I did stuff. not men- I did not realize that. That's kind of fun. That is fun. I don't think it really matters, but it's fun. To be fair, if Annie was the cook, she was would have been just as responsible for the death if it were to have happened at that time as Mrs. Voorhees was. That's true. And like Mrs. Maybe Voorhees like, was actually responsible in the sense that her son was swimming and she knew that he was swimming. And knew that he couldn't swim. Yeah. Or could or could swim, but not well. I don't know. Anyway. anyway if you know your kid's going to swim, if you're at the camp, if you know he's really not good at it and might die, be there maybe? Yeah. It wasn't lunchtime. It wasn't dinner. It was swim time. She could have been there. Yeah. She could have. Get it together, Mrs. Voorhees. Um, Victor Miller actually didn't like the fact that later on the movies made Jason the killer, which I kind of... I would kind of love it if, like, Pam Voorhees was, like, the ultimate, like, Freddy versus Pam. Like, how great would that be? <laughs> it's like a, a sweater showdown. I do want to see that movie. It'd be great. Seven movies worth of Betsy Palmer getting increasingly elderly. But her head came off. Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously. Yeah, but they do they do stuff to They to usually him. shoot them or set them on fire and stuff like that. They usually don't cut off the head. That's true. That's kind of like, like a and like if I vampire had, style tap out. If Jason came back three times and I cut off his head the fourth time, I'd probably just carry around his head with me all the time, because then I know that he doesn't have it. <laughs> That's good planning. I like that. Thank you. Yeah. Before this movie was created or even thought of, Sean Cunningham had worked with Wes Craven on the original Last House on the Left. Which I have not seen. I also have not seen it. And I honestly don't really want to. It's a really, it's fucked up. Like, there's horrible sex crimes and terrible murder. That does not sound fun. Um, And horrible murder sounds fun. Horrible sex crimes, it's harder to get behind. Yes, agreed. "Mm, Not as as escapey, you know? It's not as, mm. Um, So that was a pretty successful movie, but it was a bit more intense than Sean Cunningham was looking to go in the future. He describes it as not a fun movie at any level. And he kind of talks about, um, this is from the the documentary Going to Pieces, which is on uh, Amazon.com. 
Uh, <laughs> not Amazon.net. Not Amazon.net. Make Specifically sure. .com. Amazon Prime. For those of you who have that, through stars. It's a stars one. So there specifically. There are so many levels to this. Amazon.com slash going to pieces the movie. <laughs> Don't go to that address. That's not a real address. Don't do that one. Um, so he talks about it kind of. And that he didn't like that his name had, at, after the success of Last House on the Left, it kind of become synonymous with these really cheap, super disgusting horror movies. So Wes Craven goes to Hollywood, he gets an agent, he becomes successful. Cunningham moves away from horror for a while, and he starts taking other jobs on movies that don't really go anywhere, but aren't as gory or as messed up as Last House on the Left. Uh, he worked on a on a Bad News Bears ripoff, he calls it a ripoff, I'm not calling it that, called Here Come the Tigers, which is where he met Victor Miller. They, he wrote uh, Here Come the Tigers. And the two became friends. They started working together pretty regularly. On the same film, he started working with uh, Harry Manfredini, who's the composer. He composed the music for uh, Here Come the Tigers, uh, as well as a couple other projects that Cunningham worked on. Can you just say Here Come the Tigers again? Here Come the Tigers. Thank you. I haven't seen Here Come the Tigers, but I kind of want to. Uh, I do only because I like the title a lot. Here they come. Here Those they tigers. Come, here come the tigers. I don't. <laughs> You're a real hairy man for Dini, Maddie. Uh, <laughs> it's a speed racer song. Huh? It's a speed racer song. Yeah, but with Here Come the Tigers. Yeah. Um. So he's making all these great family movies they're all really friendly and warm and fuzzy and he likes them he enjoys working on them but they're not going anywhere and it's been like 10 years in the industry he needs to feed his family and so he decides that he's just gonna do a movie that's gonna be a success that's his main priority at this point in time and that is when halloween comes out and it is a huge hit which is probably i mean definitely deserves its own episode as well which we did not do so, Despite the fact Halloween is like in two weeks from now. Oh, we should do. Oh, we should do a Halloween episode about Halloween. It'll just be Halloween. the same exact thing as this, though. It'll be like it's it's this, but without some things. So, Halloween happens. Huge success. People love it. It's the first one of those real slasher movies. Cunningham looks at the formula uh, of what it has as far as teenagers running from this sort of unknown stabby person in this familiar friendly setting uh in halloween it was a babysitter working at one of her clients houses obviously in friday the 13th it's a summer camp he decides that it would be pretty easy to replicate the same concept and and get some good money out of it so he partners back up with victor miller and with harry manfredini again and they decide more or less that they're just going to rip off Halloween. And that is how the horror industry became so formulaic. Yeah. So thank you, Sean Cunningham, for that. Yeah. And I mean, while it is very formulaic, it also kind of takes things that happen in Halloween, repeats them, and turns them into important cornerstones of the genre. Um which I guess is, yeah, part of the reason why a lot of these movies seem fairly familiar. All exactly the same. Yeah. Which is great. But with, with different fun features. That's true. So before the script um, was even finished, uh, Sean Cunningham decided that in spite of Victor Miller's name, The Long Night at Camp Blood. 
which God, still I love it. I love it. So excellent much. name. It's such a good name. Um, so he decides that in spite of that, he's going to go with the name Friday the 13th, which he thinks is a wonderful name for a movie. And honestly, you know, it is. It's, it's, it's a good name for a movie. It's he's catchy. concerned, however, that someone else will have it. And the way that he gets around that is by taking out a an ad in Variety. Um, an ad in Variety where he puts just the title uh, in that weird word art yeah it's really odd the type treatment they picked for the beginning of the movie because it looks like just a piece of word art like rolling around or whatever it looks like a like a mel brooks movie or something like that like it it doesn't look serious enough kind of monty python-esque a little bit and it's like busting through a pane of glass it's very cheesy but that's what he goes with he puts an ad in variety it says, the most terrifying film ever made, and then it says Friday the 13th. Now, his thought process behind this was that if somebody else already had the name Friday the 13th, they would contact him to sue him or tell him he couldn't make his movie. That didn't happen, so he figured he was okay to use the name. But what did happen was that he started getting messages from studios and producers asking him about this most terrifying film Uh, ever made and wanting to see about it and to see the movie and to invest in it. And so that's how he ended up funding Friday the 13th is that he got $500,000 off of an investor, which I guess is pretty impressive that he was able to figure out a name that would get that much attention just based on the name. But I mean, it could have been called a long Long night Night at at camp Camp blood. That's a real missed opportunity. It is. I kind of want to make that movie. You'd probably get sued. To put <laughs> I probably would. First. Yeah. I can't even like afford a subscription to Variety. No. Well, you can just look at it on the on the internet. That's what I do. Yeah. Sometimes. I do it sometimes. I don't do it as much as I should. I know you're supposed to keep up with that stuff. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Oh, well. Someday. Yeah. So, as we mentioned, this is an earlier slasher movie. Its position in the history of slashers is really interesting to me because it is pretty referential towards the few existing slashers and horrors um, that come before it. But like I mentioned, it does it in a way that establishes and builds on the concepts that they introduce. Obviously, there's a lot of Halloween influence. Uh, Like I said, it's a bunch of young, sexy teenagers running away from a scary guy who wants to stab people to death based on a specific date because of an event that happened on that date in the past. Pretty I much mean, the exact plot of yeah. Friday the 13th. They just kind of shook it up with the female female serial killer yeah. there at the end. I like that. That's cute. It's nice. Girl power. Girl power. <laughs> Listen, ladies can murder campers too. Ladies can murder just as well as guys can. It's 2017. It was 1980 then. It was. And now it's 2017. S- and... 37 years later, women are still not murdering enough. In movies. In movies. Not in real life. Don't murder people. We're murdering too much in real life. Not women. Not as much as some other people. But I think any amount is really too much. So the moral is women should kill more in movies. Everyone should kill less in life. Yeah. Yeah. Great. If you take away nothing else from this, that's what you should take away. Um, so once the later installments introduced Jason as an actual 
you know, as the actual villain of those movies. And then in the third movie, he gets his hockey mask. Then the parallels between him and Michael Myers and Halloween become a little bit more clear. It's not as much of a direct copy at this point in time in terms of the actual killer uh, that it's all revolving around. But there is still a very similar feel for a lot of the movie. It's a lot of running away, being scared, sexy teenagers. A lot of sexy teenagers. Stab, stab. But they're not teenagers in real life. No. They might not even actually be teenagers in the movie in this We actually one. don't know for sure. It's a little vague. Jamie Lee Curtis was an actual teenager. So with that said, Friday the 13th is much, much gorier, much more violent, much bloodier than Halloween is. Thank goodness for that. Oh, it's great. It's, it's so good. brutal. So much death happens. Um, Halloween shows a lot of murder, but you don't actually see a lot of actual bloodshed. Like, you see the bodies, but they're not super crazy ripped up or anything like that. You don't have, like, an arrow protruding through someone's throat, for oh, instance. So gross. Yeah. In Friday the 13th, not every single death is shown on screen, but as we mentioned, you do see every dead body at some point in time, and they are all messed up looking. Um, this is something that future slasher movies definitely capitalize on and even build on um, to the point that even by Nightmare on Elm Street, you're seeing gruesome slashings and Johnny Depp's super crazy blood-spurting mattress death scene uh, in Nightmare on Elm Street. So the move to a bloodier feel for Friday the 13th was actually intentional. Now, Halloween is a very scary movie, and they get that vibe across mostly by using Michael Myers's weird body language. Like just um, standing still in the window staring. Yeah, or like he cocks his head in a really creepy way, or like he's just a that unsettling mask man. Right. It's messed up. It is. And obviously you can't do that if you aren't showing the murderer for the entire movie. It's true. Which they're not doing on Friday the 13th. You occasionally see like hands or flannel or something like that, but you don't actually see the killer. Exactly. You don't get a sense of her physical presence, which is why she's a surprise when she shows up at the end. Great choice. Um, they also use tense cinematography in Halloween, which they do use as well in Friday the 13th. And these methods together create a lot of tension and a lot of fear, even without showing brutal murders. Now, everybody involved in Friday the 13th realized that these were effective. They understood that it was a huge hit and people loved it, but they also knew that if they wanted their movie to be a success, it couldn't just be a direct ripoff of Halloween. It had to bring something new to the table. Um, and in order to do that, they decided that they were going to amp up the spectacle of blood and guts. Thank God for that. Oh my God. Amen. It's great. It's so good. Sometimes it's cheesy. And now we can kind of talk about a little bit what we talked about earlier, which is that it looks bad in this movie when you watch it now. I will say some moments look bad. Some moments look really good. Like the arrow through the throat. Parts of that are really good looking. The fact that his throat is a completely different color than every other part of his body. Yeah. Less great. I mean, it's clearly just his head with a dummy body underneath it. Yes. But from the side, it looks pretty convincing. So when the actual thing is bursting up through. I will say, when that other girl gets hit in the face with an axe, that was pretty impressive. That was. And I noticed that they didn't actually show it hit her. But they showed it after. Yeah. So you still, you know, you don't have to pull off the false face or whatever it's just but like the fake head with the axe sticking out of it was very impressive it was really disturbing and and when you see um ned when his dead body is in the bunk bed there's like some messed up stuff and like his neck has been slit or whatever it looks cool yeah 
So all of these cool effects are made possible by the crazy brain of Tom Savini, who is a badass special effects guy, and he did all of the makeup, special effects makeup for this movie. By all accounts, he's just got an incredible brain for on-screen violence. And he even says himself in the Going to Pieces documentary that he likes to imagine himself as the killer, and he likes to come up with various ways that he thinks it would be fun to kill someone. So is he secretly like a serial killer, or is he just living out all of his serial killer fantasies with the use of makeup? I gotta be honest, based on just the sheer number of like movies he worked on in the late seventies, he probably wouldn't 80s, have. Time. I don't think he would have time because he'd have to like cover it up and all yeah. of that. I don't. I think he was just letting it out through the art. Yeah. So. If anyone who's listening has some uh, murderous tendencies, become, become a, a makeup artist. artist. Yes, do that instead. Um, and like, I mean, we talked about, like, a lot of this stuff looks corny now, but these were huge innovations at this point in time. Like, other people weren't really doing this. I mean, this is the first, this is the beginning of serious, brutal on-screen violence in a way that people hadn't really seen before. And so rather than building off of existing special effects concepts or existing special effects techniques, Tom Savini was doing all of this stuff on his own just by figuring out how you could make something look cool. I will say, though, that this is the same year, 1980, that the movie Cannibal Holocaust came out, which is also known for being very gross and very realistic with a lot of violence actually banned in certain countries because of the violence and people watching the film were convinced that there was no way they could fake that violence and this person must have actually died on screen and that it must have actually been a snuff film and that's why it was actually banned in a lot of countries for a while the actress did not die it was very (laughs) convincing but i guess 1980 was just the time for new fancy Realistic or semi-realistic blood everywhere. Yeah, we're moving out of that flower child era and I will into the say, era of violence. I will admit I have not actually seen Cannibal Holocaust, so I can't say how much blood there actually is. But based on the Wikipedia synopsis that I've read, because I do that for movies I don't feel like watching because they sound really gross, <laughs> it sounds pretty bloody. Might have to watch it at some point in time. We probably will. Yeah. We'll get to it. So yeah, so I mean, now we can kind of focus on things like how Mrs. Voorhees' hands look after her head gets chopped off. Oh yeah, because they are definitely giant man hands. Yeah, they are the hands of Tom Savini's friend, I'm going to say this wrong, Tasso Stravakis, who is Greek and has a lot of knuckle hair that Betsy Palmer does not have. Did we really see much of her hands before that, though? She might actually have really hairy knuckles. We just didn't notice it. They do use, I think, a male stand-in multiple times. Because when uh, Annie is getting murdered in the list, oh, it's definitely like like a giant guy, without a doubt. It's not Betsy Palmer. No. Um. So, like, yeah, we can focus on those details now. But if you're seeing that in 1980, and you go to the movie theater and you see a woman's head get knocked off of her body, like, you're not focusing on the knuckle hair because you haven't been like what's the word, Um, desensitized to this stuff by years and years of increasingly brutal and horrifying slasher movies because you're at the beginning. That's true. When it's just getting started. So us watching it after having so many years of watching really good special effects that exist now. And they didn't have CGI to, like, enhance any of that stuff. All all true. It was just all Tom out in the woods. I guess I should be nicer about the ugly word art logo. 
So once these special effects are introduced, we get into the trend of these crazy outlandish deaths that slasher horrors are known for because there's a joy in it. You know, there's a creativity where like they're all sitting around talking about how to kill teenagers, you know, on screen. Can you imagine being a part of that conversation, though? Oh, my God. I mean, these guys are clearly all kind of on each other's level. Yeah. You know? So I'm be like, what would be the best way for this person to die? Where should we stick this particular arrow? Right? And that's what makes it fun is that there's this this uh, enthusiasm and sort of a, a, a jokiness to, like, these increasingly ridiculous deaths. Like, no one would do any of that stuff if they were actually trying to kill you. Especially if you're, like, a small, older woman. Like, is she really going to take the time to stick a bunch of arrows through various body parts of this she teenager? She hangs a guy up on a door. Like, nobody's doing that. So it makes it fun, and it kind of takes a little bit of the... Like, there, there's all that blood, but, like, it's still goofy. Yeah, it just kind of takes chill. out some of the seriousness because you know that no serial killer actually has the time and the energy for that shit. Exactly. So that's sort of something that they introduce and then that goes on to become more of a tenant of uh, of the actual genre, which I think is fun. So Friday the 13th also really amps up the idea of sex leading to death in a slasher movie in a way that Halloween didn't really do. It makes it more of a literal theme rather than just sort of a general concept. Every time someone does have sex on screen, they die. Almost. But, well, I guess on screen, yeah. There's only really one on screen sex scene, though, and that's Marcy and Jack. There's one on screen sex scene, and then there's the person who suggests the strip monopoly. That's true. And then I guess it's only implied that Alice has had sex, but she does live, which is fun. It's implied that something is happening, but we can't say for sure that she is having sex. We could just be jaded. No, I think they're having sex. Cool. Uh, <laughs> but it's also this this literal plot point, really. I mean, it's a plot point. The counselors who flaked on their job in 1957 left to go have sex, which led to Jason dying, which kickstarts the whole plot. Mrs. Voorhees is outright murdering people who are having sex because she feels that that led to her son's death. Not every single character is a Marcy or a Bill who's having sex and then immediately getting killed, like we said, but there is, like, a strong undercurrent of that sexuality throughout the movie. The strip monopoly, the weird implication of the hookups between Steve and Alice. Even Ned pretends to be drowning to get a kiss off of Brenda and that's then is true. immediately killed. So there he is sort of He deserves to be killed from that. That's creepy as it's fuck. It's really creepy. It's yes. gross. She was just trying to help. Brenda didn't deserve any of the stuff that she got in this yeah. movie. All Brenda wanted to do was, like, show off her pretty new underwear. Team Brenda. Anyway. Also Alice, because bowl cut. Also Alice. Brenda and Alice in it till the end. That's not true. OTP. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it does it does show up a lot, and there's all this sex, and there's all this violence. Um, I think the most literal point that we see in the movie is uh, the reveal of Ned's death, where they literally pan up from the bottom bunk where Marcy and Jack are having really tepid sex with each other. It's really disappointing, God, actually. He's just, like, kissing her neck. And then they're I just being quiet. I feel kind of bad that, like, that's what they had before they died. Right? They deserve better. Young Kevin Bacon deserved better than that. He did. It seems like it was partially his fault, though, so. I just thought about, like, I might be taking this a step too far, but, like, he penetrates her. No. And then the no. arrow no. penetrates his <laughs> no. neck. No. We're not doing that. <laughs> it's symbolism. It's not. It's sex and then it's murder. Um, so yeah, so they, they literally pan up from that up to, uh, Ned's corpse. <laughs> I hate you. That's terrible. <laughs> I think it's great. Up to Ned's corpse, which is dead. And he has not penetrated anyone. <laughs> but he is still penetrated through the throat with a knife. 
Maybe this is all just symbolism. All slasher movies are symbolically represent penetration. It's like the being penetrated snake by a knife scene is secretly a reference to a traitor within the cabin or a, a, an unwelcome intruder when, in the camp. Whenever you mention the snake scene, I want to cry I because know. that is the worst part of this movie. And there's a solid chance I will never watch this movie again because of the snake scene. Yeah, it was a real snake. And not only was they it a real snake, they head killed off. on camera, but they didn't tell the snake's owner that they were going to kill it. So apparently if you listen to it, you can actually hear the snake's owner crying in the background. That's... And I hate this movie so much oh, because of God. that fact. I recognize it did a lot for the history of horror movies and the future of horror movies and everything in between. However, they suck. So another uh, thing that they sort of borrow from Halloween and then expand on in Friday the 13th is the use of a familiar setting or location as a way of heightening the tension. So Deborah Hill, who's one of the producers on um, Halloween, mentions in Going to Pieces that she liked the idea of centering Halloween around a babysitter at work because she'd been a babysitter and it was a familiar setting to her. And she figured that a lot of other people who were watching it would also probably have been babysitters. So I have never been a babysitter but I feel like babysitting is inherently terrifying now, and I think it's probably Halloween's fault. I think that it is, but I also think that there's a scary aspect of babysitting that Halloween actually builds on and kind of flips. Kind of, where you're alone in a yeah. strange house in the dark. You don't really know what's going on. The parents are gone. Anyone who comes in the house could be the parents. It could be some strange person. Exactly. You don't know. It's a familiar idea because a lot of people have been in that situation, but there's also a lot of possibility for like when you're all by yourself with someone else's kids and you're already concerned about the well-being of the kids and it's not your house like you said anybody could come in at any time once you introduce like a crazy murderer to that it gets really scary really really quick that's true like it's a great opportunity for tension it's probably why there are so many no sleep stories written about babysitting as well gosh i used to just read those in high school not no sleep obviously but other like urban legends about uh, babysitters and stuff like that and then go babysit my neighbor's kids and I was just scared out of my mind the whole time. See, there aren't scary stories about tutors, which is why you just work as a tutor in high school instead of as a babysitter and you don't die. That was my plan in high school. It worked out very well. I also didn't die. I do want to put that on this record. But you had a higher probability of dying than I did. That's maybe true. You don't know. I don't know. I probably did. I probably did. Probably. Um... And it's something, honestly, Halloween does something really similar where they take, you know, a familiar setting, which is camp. Uh, as we discussed, we have both been to camp and had different experiences we there. Have. Um, but there is something sort of familiar about the idea of being at camp with your buddies, just hanging out before the kids come up there, uh, where there's sort of that freedom that then gets turned on its head again when you realize that, well, if there's a stranger up there trying to murder you, you're far away from everyone. There's no real adult supervision. Uh, it's very easy to disable the car and cut the phone lines. And then you're really in it and you're in, in trouble. And I think it's interesting that this is sort of something that they, you know, 
that they used and they sort of ran with. And it does make for a pretty scary setting. I will say when I was a camp counselor, there were nights where we had to like sit outside to make sure the kids weren't leaving their cabins and all that. Most of the camp counselors go hang out and do whatever in the counselor cabin and about three per night were assigned to hang out outside. You're just hanging outside alone in the dark and it is pretty spooky. Like there are woods. I don't know what's in the woods. I don't, I don't understand nature. There are weird noises. Oh, I didn't even like living in a heavily wooded area when I was a kid. Yeah. I'm from the city. (laughs) Going to the woods was weird. (laughs) Um, and I mean, I think, honestly, I think that a part of that might be because of movies like Friday the 13th or like maybe these kids didn't care about being in the woods. That's very true. Because they didn't know that there could be a crazy serial killer. They didn't know to be scared yet. Exactly. That's why they don't split up or they do split up and now they would know not to split up. That makes sense. That's why they don't double tap. Exactly. Because they don't know. They're dealing with this for the first time. They didn't have slasher movies to teach them. We really can't judge them too heavily. We can't. But we do anyway. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, they were still building their their slasher history. Um, And while we're talking about slasher history, one of the OG slasher movies, uh, Psycho, there is, I mean, it's not necessarily a slasher in the same way as Halloween or Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, It's a classic. It's the first, one of the first movies that incorporates the slashery themes. I mean, you got a guy running around with a knife. Um, and it's something that, you know, inspired a lot of other horror movies. A lot of other horror movies have drawn on it. And it's certainly feasible that a movie that came out in 1960 would have impacted, um, people who are making movies by 1980 pretty significantly because they would have seen it at likely a formative time. No, it seems like there definitely were a lot of references, whether on purpose or accidental. There are a lot of things they did that tied back to psycho in some way or another yeah i noticed this score right away personally which is that harry manfredini's incredible score features a lot of really screechy strings yeah (laughs) do you want to keep going do you want to do more of that and that's how you know that a murderer is on the way yeah um if you ever hear that just happening you're probably in trouble get on out of there um, obviously, it's really effective in both. Um, obviously, it's really effective in both movies. It's scary. It's creepy. It sets the tone just right. Um, aside from that, we see the use of the false protagonist, um, which Psycho is one of the big movies that did that first. Uh, they cast a big star as Marion Crane and then killed her off. Spoilers, but come on. And in this movie, they do something similar where we first see Annie. We first connect with Annie. And then she's the first person to die. Can we really say that we connected with Annie, though? She petted a dog? She did pet a dog, but she had, like, a really weird conversation with that dog. She did. She asked it for directions. And she was like, ha, 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 you don't speak English. Dogs speak English. Or they understand (laughs) English. (laughs) Listen. (laughs) She doesn't know that dogs didn't speak English. She didn't even give him a chance to respond. (laughs) You don't know, Annie. Don't be so presumptuous. You're in a movie. It's not like you're in real life. <laughs> but either way, it seems like she's de- <laughs> it seems like she's definitely going to be the leading lady, and then she's murdered in the woods. I was kind of pissed because it took too long. It took a long time. Like, I was a little was mad. It was four separate time. scenes or something like that of her like making her way to camp, and then she doesn't actually make it. But Psycho has a whole like storyline with Marion before she gets murdered. Like but she's, she still dies, and then other stuff doesn't happen. Isn't like interspersed throughout the entire movie. 
Like, it takes a while for Annie to die. I guess that's true. Yeah, we start seeing the other creepy stuff. You're right. You're right. It is more annoying. Um, I don't know. She's Maybe. not as developed of a character. She's not as interesting as Marion Crane, but she serves a similar purpose. And she has really nice hair. She has great hair. She has fantastic hair. R.I.P. to Annie's hair. Apparently, I have a lot of opinions involving 1980 hairstyles. 80s hair is like, I mean, it's worth a discussion. And it's great because it was, like I said earlier, the whole cusp of 1970s, 1980s. So you get like the best and the worst of both decades. It's true. You got your bowl cuts. You got your side ponies. You got your luxurious curls. You got it all. Um, Another thing I noticed with Psycho, uh, and this is the last thing that I will say about Psycho because I could go on a lot longer, um, is that Pamela Voorhees and Norman Bates are kind of flipped versions of each other. They're sort of mirror versions. Um, Pamela's initial reason for killing is just revenge. um, But by the end of you know, her kind of unraveling, she's clearly speaking both as herself and as her son, where she's telling him she's going to kill for him and then telling herself to kill them and... Kill him, mommy! It's mama. Mama. (laughs) So she's kind of... (laughs) She's kind of absorbed his personality um, following the tragedy of his death. Now, Norman Bates, on the other hand, is a son who takes on the personality of his mother due to his inability to let her death go. Uh, he's more conflicted than Pamela is. Pam is like, all right, let's go. Let's murder some teenagers, like, from the jump. Whereas Norman seems legitimately disturbed by what he does when he's being his mother. Um, but either way, they're both combining mother and son into one super murderous entity, which I think merits a reference because it's too similar to ignore. Remind me to never have a son. <laughs> because either I'm going to start killing people, he's going to start killing people. Apparently this is just what happens. I don't think that's... Like, okay, so like my mom has a son, right? And my mom even dresses somewhat similarly to Pamela Voorhees. Although I think that she is much nicer and prettier because she's my mom and I love her. She is much prettier. She is much nicer. However, are you sure she isn't like secretly killing teenagers in a camp somewhere? Yeah, I'm but pretty sure. Pretty. I mean, sure. I guess you never fully know another person, but like, if I had to make like a short list of people who I thought in my life were killing teenagers in a camp, she'd be close to the bottom. Plus, she's a school teacher, so if she hasn't started killing them during the day, then she's not going to start killing them on the weekends. Maybe she just doesn't want to get arrested. Why don't we just turn this into a serial type podcast about how you think my mother is killing teenagers? Done. Excellent. <laughs> Um, so another movie that was definitely an influence on this is Carrie. Um, and we know this because Sean Cunningham has been very open about the fact that the ending of the film was directly inspired by Carrie. Uh, Originally it was just going to end with Alice surviving and it was going to wrap up after the end fight scene. Um, but some of the guys on the film had recently seen Carrie and they remembered the jump that the, the movie got from the audience when the hand reaches out of Carrie's grave at the end. And there's that one last jump scare. And they like the idea of ending the movie on a high and kind of letting people go out with that last final, you know, jolt of adrenaline uh, to keep them interested, to keep them excited, to keep them talking about it. Uh, Obviously that worked. And by making the choice to have Jason jump out of the lake, he opened the door for these kind of infinite sequels with these unkillable villains that slashers are so known for. So Halloween did a similar thing with Michael Myers where he escapes at the end. It's clear that he's not going to be easy to kill. 
So choosing to incorporate that here in uh, Friday the 13th made that a core part of the slasher genre rather than just like something that Halloween did and then maybe one or two other movies would do. It became like a really big trend, you know? So question. Obviously, the whole idea of all these horror movies having endless sequels is something that has continued. Mm-hmm. There's still a lot of these movies. Yeah. They're even still making like Friday the 13th. But is it a good thing? Like, should we say thank you, Sean Cunningham? Or should we say, why did you do this to us? Well, I mean, I mean, that's a good question. I think that that's, you know, a person to person feeling. I don't like an infinite number of sequels necessarily. But I definitely don't think that the slasher genre or really horror in general would be the same without that. Because when you think about it, like one scary movie doesn't make Freddy, you know, Freddy Krueger a classic icon or Jason Voorhees. Jason Voorhees isn't even really in this movie as a real threat. He just pops up for a half second. So we wouldn't even have, like, the iconic character of Jason unless they had left it open and continued to build. That and even the half second that you see Jason, you don't even know if it's real, if it's a dream, like, what the heck is going on. Yeah, so, I mean... Whether or not it's good or bad, I guess, depends on whether or not you like the sequels. Um, But I think it's important that it is there. That makes sense. I don't know. I'll take it. Okay. Um, Yeah, so that's a kind of random one. Um, I guess not random. It's not really random. It's a pretty major part. So we'll just pretend I didn't say that a little bit. That sounds good. Um, All right, this next part... This one's weird. <laughs> this thing that, that I, I um, wanted to talk about is kind of strange because I don't know why it exists other than just easy marketing and the fact that it happened a couple times when the genre was first getting started. There's a really common occurrence in slashers to incorporate a specific date or a holiday or event. TV Tropes calls this horror doesn't settle for a simple Tuesday. Um, and obviously Friday the 13th is the date in question on this one. Um, which we kind of discussed, that doesn't really have a lot to do with the plot. It has very little to do with the plot. Except that it's possibly his birthday. I mean, it's definitely his birthday, but who knows? The 13th is his birthday. Do they even say, though, that it is a Friday in the movie? I don't know. They do mention that it's a full moon. So we get kind of a triple whammy on that one, where it's his birthday, and it's a special date, and it's a full moon, and there's a lot of bad stuff happening. Um, But, I mean, you see it in other movies as well. Halloween, obviously you got Halloween. Prom night. Uh, came out the same year as Friday the 13th. That's um, another one with Jamie Lee Curtis. And that takes place on Thanksgiving. Yes, correct. That's why they called it Prom Night. Um, As the genre grows, we see movies like My Bloody Valentine on Valentine's Day. There's Christmas Slashers. There's Graduation Day, April Fool's Day. There's one called Easter Bunny Kill Kill, which came out in 2006. Obviously, it's set on Easter. There's, I mean, there's one for pretty much every holiday. And again, in Going to Pieces, I'm going to reference this again. Um... They talk specifically in the section about My Bloody Valentine about sitting down with a calendar and just going through looking for holidays that they thought that they could possibly use as inspiration. Coming out soon is Earth Day, Die, Die. I'm going to write it. Okay. And make I it. think that's uh, The Happening, right? Because of the trees. I haven't actually seen The Happening. Oh, good. Don't. It's very, <laughs> very bad. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's not good. Uh, the main couple in that is Mark Wahlberg and Zoe Deschanel. Yeah. Just think on that. I, I am thinking on that. I have feelings. 
I don't know what they are. I have a lot of mixed emotions. Yeah, it's bad. So it's about, like, basically, like, a bunch of people are just start killing themselves for no reason. And it turns out that it's spores that are being released from the trees. And so there's, like, a scene where Zoe Deschanel and Mark Wahlberg have to, like, run across a field to, like, get to each other or whatever. Like, and they have to outrun the trees. Like, trees not the trees that run are, very they're not fast. moving, but, like, there's spores in the wind or whatever. Killer trees. Yeah, it's very bad. It's a very bad movie. You should not watch it. Solid. Anyway, so I don't know. I, I mean, I don't really know where to go with the, the date thing other than the fact that it's just a weird thing that pops up a lot. It does really make me want to write a series of really obscure holiday horror movies. I gotta be honest, I went through the TV Trips page for Horror Doesn't Settle on a... Horror Doesn't Settle for a Simple Tuesday. And there's like every... Like May Day... Flag Day. I don't know about Flag Day, but probably. We can make that one. We'll make a Flag Day horror. People end up as flags on flagpoles. Ooh, that's fun. Like skinned? I w- something like that, yeah. Okay. I Just like imagine it. the picture. It would be like the U.S. flag stained with blood. Ew. All like the red stripes are dripping. Gross. Done. I was imagining like a flagpole being shoved through a person. I think that's just cannibal holocaust. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of opportunities here, and we'll have to chat this out later. So obviously the legacy of Friday the 13th is hard to overstate in terms of the slasher genre. Uh, like we've talked about, I mean, it kind of built a lot of the foundations of what we think about when we think about a slasher movie. Um, but it was also really instrumental in just allowing slashers to be made. It's important to remember this was one of the first nationwide successful uh, low-budget horror movies. The first to be backed by a major studio uh, for national release. Halloween was also a low budget. It had about a $300,000 budget in comparison to uh, Friday the 13th's $500,000 budget. But Halloween wasn't released nationally. It was released um, in limited showings. uh, And it struggled against poor reviews initially. Um, Eventually it got a really glowing review in the Village Voice. And then people started going and checking it out. And it took off. Now when it actually became successful... Paramount became open to the idea of distributing a slasher horror. Initially, they wanted to go for prom night. Didn't work out. So they decided to go with Friday the 13th instead. So they distributed Friday the 13th. Um, They opened it nationally, which was big because it was so low budget. It probably wouldn't have gotten significant distribution otherwise. Um, They opened it across the country. It's a huge hit. It had an overall box office success of uh, 59 had an overall box office uh, of $59.8 million, which is $177.2 million if you account for inflation. So when you combine a low budget with that kind of huge box office success, it's a it's an incredible profit opportunity. So it kind of made it clear to these studios that there's no reason not to invest in these low budget things. And it's insane because there's so many low budget movies still coming out. Exactly. Like you look at Blair Witch Project, which was just like a little handheld film thing and was also incredibly successful. And then, I mean, Paranormal Activity was made for a stupidly low amount of money as well. Exactly. And it was a huge, incredible hit. And so now they're just getting sequel after sequel after sequel. So it's like the movies are getting cheaper and they just keep making more money, and it's kind of ridiculous at this point. Yeah, like that's but why like 57 horror movies come out every summer. But it's also interesting because a lot of the really cheap ones are really innovative as well. Yeah, I think you kind of have to be. Like, you can't just, like, you have to have a Tom Savini type guy who can, like, magic you up a neck wound. That's true. That's really cool. I mean, it's, um, it definitely did a lot, um, for the genre. 
and paved the way for these slasher movies to start to get support from studios that they might not otherwise ever have gotten. Um, but it is also important to remember uh, in, in the book Crystal Lake Memories, The Complete History of Friday the 13th by Peter Brackey. I think it's Bracky. It might be Brack. There's an E on the end, but I'm not sure what it's doing. Uh, it is important to, to remember that these movies were not made with the intent of shaping a genre or paving the way for anything or establishing these conventions. Like, we talk about them now, like, they did all this stuff, but, like, literally Sean Cunningham just wanted enough money to get by. Like, Betsy Palmer wanted a new car. She thought that the script was kind of dumb, but it was going to buy her a new car, so she took the the job and she got hate mail for a while but then it became a huge success and tom savini just loved blood and just these people kind of got together where would we be without savini and his love of blood today really i don't know in a more boring place for sure definitely and we wouldn't be here we would i mean we'd be here just not talking about this we would still be in my kitchen probably probably like doing a podcast about cooking or knitting or something like that can you imagine how boring a podcast about knitting would be there's probably like a podcast about knitting out there and now you're gonna get like them all. Mail, uh getting off to a great start um please don't send us hate mail both of us do knit i crochet more than i knit uh because i am too lazy to keep track of two needles yeah that's valid yeah that's hard so that's it. That's the history and the legacy. And I'm sure that there's a ton of stuff that we could have covered, but we realized that we've been talking for like two hours. Sorry about that, guys. We and really like our horror movies. We do. We love it. And I am a big film nerd and I want to talk about tropes and history. Um, and I like listening to Maggie talk and also putting in my two cents because I just really like horror and gross things. Yes. So anyway... Obviously, a shout out to Sean Cunningham, Tom Savini, everyone else who is involved in this very bloody and beautifully gross movie. We wouldn't be here without you. We wouldn't. So what are we going to watch next time, Maggie? Well, Maddie, I was thinking that our next episode uh, could be Saw. I've never actually seen it. Well, now you can see Saw. (laughs) Can I see Saw? (laughs) You can see Saw. Uh, you can watch that. It's on Netflix. I just watched it for the first time, like, a couple weeks ago. I will admit, I'm a little nervous about the whole, like, torture porn category. Yeah, it's not... I've heard this one's not that bad. The first one's not that bad. Like, I saw the third... No, not the third one. Saw 3D. Was that the third one? It it wasn't, because I don't know why they named it that. I have no idea. I saw it in the theaters, um, and it was bad. And it was very torture porny, and I was expecting something similar out of the first saw, and it, it's not that bad. I don't think it'll like Beautiful. turn your stomach or anything. Perfect. Um, I just like close my eyes occasionally. Exactly. It'll be perfect. You guys, I get scared really easily, which is weird for someone who is on a horror podcast. But it makes it more fun, I think. Yeah, I mean, because you like really experience the emotion true. that you're supposed to be experiencing. So anyway, um, tune in two weeks from now to hear us talk more about some scary things. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna watch Saw. So uh, take a watch, and then we'll be here later. Cool. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Love you. Call me when you get home. That's directed to you guys, the audience, not Maddie. <laughs> no, I want you all to call me from inside the right house right when you get home. <laughs> All right. Goodbye, everyone. Take care.